Good morning, church family. My name is P.J. Ryan. I serve as one of the elders here at Calvary. Uh, today's reading will come from 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1-6. through 6. I'm reading from the NASB, 1995. Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we received mercy, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced the things hidden because of shame, not walking in craftiness or adulterating the word of God, but by the manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, light shall shine out of darkness, he's the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. May God bless the reading of his word. How are we? Doing okay today? All right. Well, thank you for being here today. If you have your Bible, I encourage you to keep your place in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, but we're also going to be looking at a second different passage in John chapter 4, so I would encourage you to kind of mark both places today. We're in our second week of a four-week series on going out, a sermon series on evangelism. As I kind of shared last week, how this all came about was at the last elder meeting. Uh, this is the year of go out to the world and to the zip code. That's why we built the playground. We really want to reach our neighbors here. And that's why we sent a mission trip halfway across the world to kind of understand if we can have a long-term relationship there. So this is the year of go out. And so the last elder meeting, the elders just said, Byron, we just want to hear your heart for why we should go out, heart for this particular cause or vision for this year. And so I changed course, and that's why we're spending the month of August on this evangelism series, and we'll begin kind of the minor prophets in September. And uh, today, what I want to talk to you about is spiritual blindness. Spiritual blindness. The blindness of the world to the things of God. There's a mission field before us. Behold, I lift up, lift up your eyes and see, and look on the fields, for they are white for harvest. Today hits at the core. This sermon has evolved and simmered and changed over the last week. As a matter of fact, I changed it so late that we didn't even change the bulletin. And uh, it's just this question in my study kept coming up and gripped my heart and my mind. And that is the question I want to answer this morning on evangelism, on spiritual blindness. But allow me to begin with a story. How many of you have ever been to Washington, D.C. before? Anybody ever been there before? All right, so a lot of us. I wouldn't want to live there, uh, but it's a nice place to visit. Uh, what are some of the sites that you have seen? What are some of the things that you, you like seeing there in Washington, D.C.? I'm asking if you're brave enough to speak. The Smithsonian's good. Yep. What's that? The White House? Lincoln Memorial? Yeah? The cherry trees? Is that what you said? Okay. If I heard that right, I'm losing a little bit of hearing these days. Too much loud music as a teenager. Um, the Washington Monument, personal favorites are the Smithsonian's just because I'm a super duper big nerd and uh, I like reading all of the little plaques in my track with me on that. So uh, this summer, Laura and I, my wife, we were brave enough to drive our RV in my truck 
to Washington, D.C. with our three little children. Uh, I have a three little girls, a seven, a five, and a two. We went camping on the outskirts of Washington, D.C. and we went into the city just a few days just to kind of do some sightseeing. And, and the best way, they say, to get around the city is the subway system. Now, the subway system is this underground railroad, not, okay, underground train things, okay, I don't know why I, I can't come up with the, the way to describe it, it's a, it's a train, okay, that goes underground, there we go, and uh, we, we hopped on this stop, and we drove into the city, drove, we rode into the city on the subway, and the most difficult part of that uh, time was not navigating the subway, but it was actually the hour commute from where we first were to the inside of the city itself, and as you can imagine, I have a Keep in mind, I have a seven-year-old, a five-year-old, and a two-year-old. And they're all little girls, and I love them, and they have their daddy around their fingers. Um, and we were on the subway, and we met some interesting characters, okay? And uh, there's one guy. The first time we get on the subway, we, we see this guy. He probably hadn't bathed in at least a year. And he was strung out on something, and I saw a slobber off of his face onto the windowsill. And he was just out cold. And there was this another person that I don't know if it was a man or a woman smoking on the subway. And my daughter looked at them funny, like, what in the world? And then they kind of mouthed off to my child and didn't. Yeah, anyways, moving on. Um, but, the, but the most difficult part of that subway system was not the people, was not navigating, but was that hour commute. As you know, subway systems are not the cleanliness places in the world. Okay? So I'm sitting there for an hour, one way. With a seven-year-old, a five-year-old, and a two-year-old, and I just take a moment and I just kind of phase out, you know? And I just kind of go one of these numbers on the subway, and I look over at my five-year-old Olivia, and I see her licking the subway. <laughs> one of those metal handrails, I just hear her go... Uh, I was absolutely, what, terrified. Sure enough, three days later, this lime green, neon green came about. Uh, and of course, at that moment, I, I phase out and I see my five-year-old licking the subway and I start kind of wigging out. Like, why in the world would you do that? You know, what are you thinking? And Olivia just staring at me like, what? What's the problem? Uh, Olivia is like the world. Often the world is oblivious to the eternal realities, to the dangers that await them in eternity, to what awaits them if they reject Christ as Lord and Savior. Friends, this week, just this thought, and I, and I know it to be true, but this thought just came across me, hit me like a ton of bricks, that wait, there are people out there in the world, my neighbors, my cousins, we have family members, we have friends that have no idea what awaits them, that there is an enemy that desires to keep them from knowing the truth, that there is a sin nature that desires to be like God, and there is an eternal reality to those who reject Christ as Lord and Savior of their life. And the greatest weapon of the enemy is for us to forget that there is a spiritual war for the souls of mankind. And we are like me. We know the dangers in theory. We see the dangers in reality of people rejecting Jesus Christ as Lord 
of their life, but then we become, over time, we phase out. We get so busy with life that we just kind of forget the urgency for the souls of men. We phase out, we become distracted, we become just enthralled with the busyness of life, or we find ourselves, and this is really, pastors are susceptible to this, especially in this bubble of Christianity, completely disconnected from the world and those who are far from God. We know what happens to those who reject Jesus, that the people we love, who do not trust, have one destiny, that they will go to hell for eternity. Can I just... Say that again, that the people who reject Jesus Christ go to hell for eternity. That should cause in us some emotional response. I think sometimes we, we hear that so often. You know, we've listened to Billy Graham our whole lives or listened to preachers. You've been to church and, and we say that so often that we be, just become kind of disconnected from that thought. And many churches today don't really want to talk about that eternal reality because it's not kosher. It's not politically correct. All right. But it's just the truth that the people in our lives, our children, our spouse, our friends, our neighbors, our co-workers, if they don't know Christ as Lord and Savior of their life, there is an eternal reality waiting for them. And that should bother us. It should cause us first to be inspired to share the gospel with them, but then also to feel the burden of their soul and cause us to pray for them. But in the midst of this thought that I had this week over the lost and over the unbelieving, just this question kept arising in my mind, and I kind of took it differently. This week I was planning on telling how do we share our faith, and we'll talk about the next couple weeks unless the Lord changes my mind again. But we'll, we'll talk about how we share our faith. But this is really the question I want to answer with all of you today is why don't people believe in Jesus? In other words, why do people reject the gospel of Jesus Christ? Because, I mean, think about it. The gospel is free. I mean, who who wouldn't want it? It promises eternal life, complete transformation, that the old snares of the old self no longer have dominion over us. The gospel restores my relationship to God. It gives me purpose. It transforms my life, causing me to be born again. It allows me to know God without shackles, without restraint. It promises me on this side of eternity. It promises me then eternal life. But as we saw in the gospel of John for some two years, it also promises me aliveness now. I mean, why wouldn't people want the gospel why do people reject? Why do people walk away? That is the question that, that just captivated my mind Wednesday night. And that's the question I want to answer with you today. And what we see in the scripture itself, we see one aspect in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We see the spiritual aspect that people rejecting Jesus is profoundly spiritual. And then we see in John chapter 4, it is profoundly human as well. So if you have your text, go to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. That's where we will begin today. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, we will see the spiritual side of the blindness of people, why they uh, reject the gospel. 
And so kind of give you an idea of where we are. We are in the second week of a four-week series. We'll begin the Minor Prophets going verse by verse in the month of September. But last week, we really introduced this sermon series on going out. And last week, we answered the question, why, you know, why should I? You know, why should I then share my faith? I mean, it's, it's more than, as I said, because God wants me to or God tells me to. That is a reason, and it's very valid. But it's more than that. As we saw in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 8, we see that why we should share our faith boils down to what? Who we are and what we have. Who are we? We are his witnesses for the purpose, what? As a witness in a court of law, for the purpose to tell the truth when the time arises. So who we are, we are as witnesses, purpose to tell the truth. And then what do we have? That we have the Holy Spirit inside of us giving us Power. And as I said, it's not power, it's power. So where we get the word dynamite, so Greek word dunamis, that the Spirit of God was given to us to give us power to overcome the fear that we have when we dare to share the gospel. And so today we begin in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 with why don't people believe in the gospel? And we see in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 verses 1 through 4 the spiritual side of things. Why don't people Believe in Jesus on the spiritual side of things. Second Corinthians chapter four, verse one says this. Therefore, since we have this ministry as received, as we have received mercy and we do not lose heart, but we have renounced the things hidden because of shame, not walking in craftiness or adulterating in the word of God, but by the manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. And so we wonder, what does this have to do with what we're talking about? Verse four. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. And why is it veiled? In part, it's because of something spiritual going on. Verse 4, whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, I don't know why this is off, so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. The greatest weapon of the enemy is for us to forget that there is a spiritual war for the souls of men. Clearly here, clearly in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 through 4, even though my slide isn't working, uh, we see that there is a spiritual side to the gospel, spiritual side to conversion. And we can talk about election and predestination and all that kind of good stuff, and, and that, that plays a part of it. But I believe it's deeper, it's broader, it's wider than just those mere topics so what is really going on? Second Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4. In whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving. If you notice in your text, the word God there is the, is the Greek word theos. And it has the article in front of it in the original language. In other words, it's talking about a specific person. The God. Who is it talking about? The God of this world. Literally the word, word world is ages has blinded the minds, the word mind there means intellect or thought process, of the unbelieving so that they may not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Notice that. In whose case the God of this world? Clearly it's referring to who? It's referring to the devil, Satan. John twelve thirty one calls him the ruler of this world. Ephesians 2 calls him the prince of the power of the air. John 8 calls Satan a liar and the father of lies. And what has Satan done, according to verse 4, has blinded the minds of the unbelieving. 
so that they may not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. How many of you have ever heard someone say something like this? I don't understand the gospel. You know, I've been in church all my life, but the gospel just doesn't make sense. Anybody ever heard something like that before? What is really going on there? I believe that the devil has blinded them to the truth. The light is shining, but the devil has blinded their eyes so that they cannot see. In whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving. The greatest weapon of the enemy is for us to forget that there is a spiritual war going on for the souls of mankind. The enemy has always had his tentacles and his influence all over the culture and all over this world. Seen back to the Garden of Eden. How did Satan originally appeal to us? Remember in the Garden of Eden we were created in perfection. Meant to walk with God. Meant to have a relationship with God. And then Satan does what? He taps into our ego. I. Says you can be like God. We desire control. The devil taps into that control, spreading the lie and enhancing the blindness on the culture and on individuals. Spiritual blindness is everywhere. You know, just just look upon our culture. And if you believe that the enemy does not have an influence on people, then go look on our culture as a whole. His influence is everywhere, friends. The enemy uses the world and the, uses the flesh to deceive those who do not know Christ. The enemy uses science, greed, evolution, lust, reason, pride, sin, self-reliance, naivety to blind those in the world. Spiritual blindness is everywhere. But the truth is evident. There is truth where people can read it and people can see it and people can understand it. I was listening to a a podcast recently, and there was this Christian scientist that was being interviewed uh, by this atheist. And this atheist was blind to the truth, asking questions that revealed his blindness. And there are two particular questions that he felt were stumpers that are clearly answered in the Bible, showing To me, not only are people in our culture blind, but this guy is being blinded by the enemy. The first question he asks is, if if God created all things, then where did God come from? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. If God were created, then what? He would not be God. The second question he asked is, the atheist asked, is if God is good, then why is there evil in the world? Us. God did not create spiritual puppets, but ones that he so desired to love him that he gave us free will so we could choose to love him in return. And because of the enemy's lies in the Garden of Eden, mankind chose to rebel, ushering in sin and death to all. The evidence is clear. You know, we live in a time where our culture keeps going further and further away from the truth of the gospel, away from the truth of the Bible. But there's never been a time in human history where the Bible has been more accessible. The God of this world 
is deceiving, is blinding the minds of the unbelieving. Friends, listen, the greatest weapon of the enemy is for us to forget that there's a spiritual war going on for the souls of mankind. If we just chalk up people rejecting Jesus to some kind of human, humanistic effort, then we're kind of missing the bigger picture. There's something happening. But the question we have is, okay, okay, so yes, Byron, I get it, that there's the, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they would not receive the gospel of the glory of Christ. Okay, so what do we do about it? You know, what do we do about the spiritual warfare going on? I was gripped by that question. Friends, the first thing, the middle thing, and the last thing we should do is pray. You can be the greatest apologist in the world. You can be the greatest evangelist in the world. You can read every book on apologetics. You can read every gospel track, every gospel presentation. You can know every Bible verse in the whole New Testament, and you are completely powerless to truly convince people to the truth. We are, in a sense, powerless Because of the God of this world, because of mankind's fallen nature, and that the Holy Spirit has to come in and lift up their eyes to see the truth. We are powerless, but He is powerful. We need to pray. Friends, listen to me. I would imagine every single one of us in our life have somebody in our life that has just been blinded by the culture. They have these questions. They have these thoughts. They have all these things that blind them to the truth. Friends, the best thing we can do is pray that the Spirit of God would open their eyes to the truth. What does it say in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6? For God who said, light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Luke 4, 18. The Spirit of God is upon me because He anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. And He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind to set free those who are oppressed. Before you worry about how to witness, pray. Before you stress out about what to say to your son or your daughter, pray. Before fear grips your stomach, before you share the gospel, pray. What does it say in Romans 1.16? For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Why don't people believe in Jesus? People resist the gospel because of spiritual blindness, that there is a spiritual war going on that we cannot see, taste, or touch, but we know it to be true, both primarily biblically, but we also see the witness of our culture that they are just blinded by the values and the thoughts of the culture to reject Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. But there's also this profound humanistic side that people resist the gospel because of something deeply spiritual, but it's also profoundly human. There's this sense of a paradox That there's something going on inside of a human's sin nature to cause them to resist the gospel. Let me just ask the question, and I asked this in my evangelism class this morning. What is absolutely required for people to believe in Jesus? What must they always do? They must first, what? 
recognize their sin. If you don't understand your need for Jesus, why would you ever think you would need him in the first place? If you don't understand your soul's thirst, why would you ever want the rivers of living water? You must first recognize your sin. But biblically speaking, there's something more specific than just sin as a general category going on. It is critical for people to recognize their sin, but specifically something as a whole. I think in our culture today, and we talked about this this morning, we have a lot of things in our culture that have caused us to kind of back up in our gospel presentations. No longer when we share our faith can we just jump in with sin and Jesus and the gospel and the cross because in our culture, it's a postmodern culture. Most people don't have that sense of foundation, be able to even hang our theological hooks on. Most people today say, I don't really need Jesus because, as I was talking with a friend of mine at lunch this week, I'm a good person. I'm a good person. I can make it to heaven. And after all, I'm better than that person. And I'm better than a lot of people in churches today. So I'm good. Friends, we have to be mindful that people have to understand their sin and their need of Jesus. And it's something more specific than just the general category of sin, but something that I call a crutch. A crutch is a reason or a hurdle that one must overcome to believe in Jesus. A crutch can be a question, a thought, a person, a sin that we place in that God-shaped hole in the soul of our being to fill the void. I had a seminary professor share a story in class, and my seminary professor that was there was one of my favorites. Um, he was studying for his Ph.D. at a secular university, and he sat underneath in his Ph.D., if you know how that kind of works, he sat underneath his mentor, and uh, his mentor was a, was a homosexual dying of AIDS. And this, his mentor was dying, and this is in the 1980s, and uh, throughout the whole process of him getting his Ph.D., he had countless conversations with this man who was dying. And I remember him telling the story that at his graduation, he went up to this his mentor who was dying of AIDS, and he said to him, you know, you know the truth, you understand Jesus, you understand that framework, you understand why you need him, so then why don't you just believe? And that guy who was dying said, for two reasons, Number one, it's not the popular thing to do. And number two, if I believe in him, I have to do what he says. That's the crutch. That's the reason. That's what he has placed inside of his heart, inside of his soul, in the God-shaped hole in his heart as an excuse or reason or hurdle or obstacle to resist the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's something profoundly human going on. I had another friend in seminary who was an atheist in high school and in college, and I remember him telling me that said, if my dad hadn't died, I would have remained an atheist. In other words, what? That his dad was that crutch. What his dad thought of him was the reason he didn't come to Christ. But is this biblical? You know, is this idea of a sin or a thought of a crutch, is it it a biblical thing? Well, John chapter 4 is where we see one on full display. So if you have your Bible, turn to John 4 the other way. Um, 
So why do people resist the gospel? Part of it is spiritual blindness that the God of this world and the greatest tool, the greatest weapon of the enemy is for us to forget that there's a spiritual war for the souls of men. So there's a spiritual blindness going on, but there's also something profoundly human, profoundly personal. And there is a sin in people's lives that keep them from believing in Jesus. Um, kind of orient us to what I'm about to talk about here. In college, I... Um, I was a nerd in college still, but I had bigger muscles, so I didn't look like one. Um, I looked like a big jock. Anyways, but I was a nerd. Um, and so, anyway, sorry. And, uh, and, and, I, and I just went like, I wanted to know, okay, how did Jesus share the gospel? You know, if we're meant to share our faith, we're meant to tell people about Jesus, well, how did Jesus do it? So what I did was I took out a harmony of the gospel. If you're not familiar with that, that's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John put in chronological order. That's what that is. And I just went like scorched earth mentality. And I looked at that. I read that thing cover to cover. And I, I looked at every single time that Jesus shared the gospel with an individual. And I noticed in every single occurrence there was something, there was that one thing that was keeping them from following and believing in Jesus. And we see one on full display in John chapter 4. If you know the story, it's very famous. Um, Jesus is weary from his journey. He walked through the area of the country called Samaria. Most purebred Jews would walk around that area. But Jesus and his disciples decide to go through the area. Jesus is weary from his journey. He sits down at a well. He sends his disciples off into town. And then a Samaritan woman approaches him. But before we think the Samaritan woman is naive. She's not. She's actually profoundly religious. She knows where they worship. She knows about the coming Messiah. She understands basic principles about the gospel, about God's plan. And then Jesus then, in verse 13 of chapter 4, begins the conversation about that hurdle, that crutch in her life that's keeping her from truly believing and being born again and having rivers of living water. Verse 13 of chapter 4 says this, And Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give shall never thirst. But the water I will give him will become in him a well springing up to eternal life. And the woman said, Of course, sir, please, Give me this water so I will not be thirsty nor come all the way here to draw. Verse 16. He said to her, go call your husband and come here. And the woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, behold, you're right. You have said correctly. I have no husband. For you have had five husbands and the one whom you now have is not your husband. This you have said correctly. What is her crutch? What is the reason why she doesn't come to faith in God is because of men. That's why Jesus points it out. Right after the rivers of living water, he presents that. And then he goes to this woman and says, That is in your life, is in that God-shaped hole in your soul that you have placed there because you feel like God cannot quench the thirst of your soul. So then she places men in that vacuum. Okay, okay. So is this crutch idea just the Samaritan woman at the well? Again, I, I, going through the gospel accounts, what about a guy named 
Nicodemus. He had the law. And what does Jesus say in John chapter 3? He says, are you not the teacher of Israel and you do not understand these things? Nicodemus thought that being good enough by obeying the law to the nth degree that he could justify his place before God. But in exchange for a true relationship with God, he placed the law. What about the rich young ruler? Possessions. Mark chapter 10 verse 21. Jesus says this, what? One thing you lack, go and sell all you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. Matthew, Matthew chapter 9 verse 9. Where does Jesus find him? He finds Matthew in the tax collector's office. And what does Jesus say? Come and follow me. What else? Zacchaeus, money, Paul, the zeal of religion. This concept of a reason why people simply won't believe in Jesus is what I see is biblical. And people put a variety of things in that vacuum, in that void. They put money, status, relationships, appearances, career, and they stuff and they stuff and they stuff, trying to find the satisfaction to their thirsty soul when only in reality Jesus can truly cause them to have rivers of living water, to be born again and to be changed. Only God can satisfy. So why don't people believe in Jesus because of spiritual blindness and because of personal sin, what I call the crutch or the reason why people resist believing in Jesus? Let me just ask you the question. You don't have to raise your hand. But if you came to Christ as an adult... I imagine it was a bit of a process. I know some of your testimonies, and I see that the Lord was working on you for years and years and years and years and years. And then there was just this moment that you realized that, wait a second, the thing that I'm placing in, my, in the place of my relationship with God truly is not satisfying. Whether it's sin, whether it's a question, whether it's intellect, whether it's science. And that had to be, in a sense, removed in order for people to even see their need for Jesus. Why don't people believe in Jesus because of spiritual blindness and just personal sin? What do we do about it? You know, because friends, biblically speaking, you can be the best arguer in the world. You can have every book written in your mind. You can know every Bible verse and you are, in a sense, powerless to truly convince people to come to Christ. We are his witnesses. We are designed to tell the truth. But the Spirit of God at the same time must work to divert the God of this world that is blinding the minds of the unbelieving to then remove what they place in their lives instead of God and that the Spirit of God must convict their heart to believe in Jesus Christ. There's this whole orchestra of things that must happen in order for people to believe in Jesus. So that kind of, in a sense, leaves us powerless. That we truly can't convince people logically just logically, to believe in Jesus. So what do we do? We are completely powerless, but he is powerful. The greatest weapon of the enemy is to convince us, is for us to forget that there is a spiritual war for the souls of mankind. The question I have is this before we wrap up. Is so what? I mean, how do I... 
take this concept of this spiritual warfare and this personal sin, this crutch that people have in their life and apply it to my life. And, um, you know, maybe you have someone in your life. This is what I want you to do right now. I want you to picture someone in your life that you're getting to know that may not follow Christ. It could be a spouse. It could be a child. It could be a neighbor. It could be a coworker. Who is someone you're getting to know that may not follow Christ? Maybe there is, you have a spouse, an unbelieving spouse in your life. And that every time you bring up the gospel, every time you bring up Jesus, they just become very defensive. Or maybe you have a son or daughter that do not believe in Jesus, and every time you bring it up, they just feel judged. Or maybe you have a neighbor that feels like they are simply good enough in order to make their way to heaven. What can we do in the midst of this opposition? The best thing we can do is pray. Pray that the spiritual blinders will be lifted. Pray that this person would recognize their sin. And I would say, pray, number three, that the Spirit of God would open their eyes to the truth. And pray, number four, that when the opportunity comes to pass, that when the Lord gives you the opportunity to be a witness, to tell the truth, that you would step through that door, put put fear aside, and communicate the truth of the gospel. Because how will they hear if we do not share Romans chapter 10. My application for you is to pray, as it says in Romans chapter 10, verse 1. Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God is for, for them is for their salvation. So my application is to pray. To first off, to picture somebody in your mind that doesn't know Christ. And number, I want you to pray for three things. Pray for their salvation. Pray for their spiritual blinders to be lifted. And pray that they would see their sin. And number four, I would add to that, is pray for an opportunity to communicate the gospel. Most of us here today, I believe, are Christians. That if you, especially if you came to Christ as an adult, that you probably remember that time in your life where you accepted Jesus Christ, you felt the blinders being lifted off of your eyes. And you realize your need for Jesus and you have come to Christ and you've been born again and you have rivers of living water bubbling up inside of you. Um, I believe most of us in this room are Christians, but I do believe that not all of us. Um, I think in a lot of churches today, the crutch that people have as they sit and listen to pastors there's a couple different crutches that I see in the lives of Christians or so-called Christians. That number one, they're Christian because someone told them they were. A pastor, a parent, prayed a prayer, and they're saved. I think also number two is I believe the enemy blinds people in churches all over the world. That people know the truth, but don't believe the truth. I wonder if there's anybody here today that has that exact mentality. Maybe if I came up to you after church today and I asked you what the gospel was, you could give me a good answer that we are saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. You could give me that good answer and that's a good answer. But you know the truth, but you don't believe the truth. 
There are blinders and there are people that are blind in churches all over the world today. My question for you is not, my question for those is, do you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ? If you're unsure of where you go when you will die, then I prayed for you this week. On Wednesday night, I just kind of stayed up with this question that we answered today. Why don't people believe in Jesus? Why do they reject Jesus? And then I just prayed for those that would be hearers today. And my question for you is, do you have a relationship with God? Have you ever been born again? Do you have rivers of living water bubbling up inside of you? If you're unsure, then let me just explain reality. Let me just explain reality to everybody in the room. Reality number one is this, that one day you will die. One day you will pass away. This is just a fact of life. You track with me? Would you agree? Say amen, we will die. Thank you. You know, I, I, this week, in the last couple of weeks, I went through my notes on my computer, and I went through all of the funeral services I have done since coming here at Calvary Bible Church over the last six years. You want to know how many I've buried here? This would probably be depressing, uh, but 40. 40 people have passed away since I've been here at Calvary Bible Church. And I can tell you, I've buried two-year-olds, I've buried 92-year-olds, I've buried 21-year-olds, and I've buried 61-year-olds. We all die. Reality number one. Reality number two is you have no idea when your day will come. We like to think that it's going to be in the future. Oh, I'll die when I'm 90. But that's not what you're promised. You're promised death because of sin. But you have a... You have a choice to make. Because you will die, because you don't know when you will die, then you have a choice. My prayer for you today, if you're unsure where you are with Christ, my prayer is that the spiritual blinders that the God of this world has blinded you to will be lifted. That the Spirit of God will open your eyes to the truth. And that you would remove the sin in your life. You would see your need for Jesus. You would take it out of your life. You would repent of your sin and that you would believe in Jesus Christ. If you're unsure of where you are, recognize the sin in your life. Repent. Go before the Lord and believe in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior of your life. If you have questions further, I would encourage you to see me after the service. Um, what does it say in John 3.16? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish but what have everlasting life. If you're unsure of where you are, believe in the Lord and receive his salvation. Pray with me. Father, thank you for this morning. Uh, Lord, I pray that we would be mindful of the, of the great weapon of the enemy. That we have an enemy that is working in the world and the flesh to deceive mankind to make them not see their need for Jesus. And Lord, we have our own fallen sin nature. Lord, I just pray that we would, that we would be burdened for the lost. Um, Lord, that that burden, that fire, that desire to share our faith would grow. And that we would be inspired to be bold. And Lord, that when you... Give us the opportunity to be able to share the gospel that we would step through that door with boldness and with clarity. And we would be your witness to tell the truth.
Lord, I just, I just thank you for this church. I thank you for all of the ways that you are blessing this church. Thank you for all of the people here. I love this church. This has been part of my life for 30 years. And Lord, I just pray that we would also be evangelists. Lord, that we would not think that's somebody else's job, but that we would see uh, our, our job, our role in this world as evangelists. And Lord, give us boldness to step through. And Lord, I, last prayer I pray. I pray for those in our lives that are spiritually blind. We all have faces and names that come to mind. Lord, I pray that you would come to them and reveal the truth of your word. And Lord, I pray that we would present the gospel with clarity when we have. Lord, thank you for today. We lift this up in Jesus' name. Amen.